Hello and welcome to the first part in a series of podcasts and research workshops brought to you by the Scottish Centre for Global History at Dundee University. I'm Paul Feeney, the convener of today's podcast, and today I'm joined by my co-editors Liam Grieve and Jordan Buchanan. This is the first part in a series of quarterly review podcasts where we're going to discuss the main sort of theoretical and practical issues in history today. Our main purpose is to provide a wider context to the blogs we've received um, and examine the ways in which the ideas presented to us in public history affect our understanding of concurrent themes such as identity, culture and politics. In addition to this podcast, we're aiming to start a series of research workshops in the next few weeks um, where students and historians can present their research ideas to be discussed in a relaxed and formal environment. If you'd like to get involved with this series or wish to contribute a blog post to the site, you can get us at scgh at dundee.ac.uk or get us on Twitter at UODSCGH. Uh, Liam and Jordan, thank you for joining me. Um, if you'd just like to introduce yourselves to start and then we'll get into it. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll go first. Um, my name is Liam Grieve. Um, I've just completed my MLIT Masters uh, in History at the University of Dundee. My research focuses on the global development of the British Empire during the 19th century, so I'm probably the most vanilla historian out of the three of us. Um, but I do have a particular interest and focus on West Africa and the development of the European presence there, but again, obviously, specifically focusing on uh, the British. Jordan? Yes, I'm Jordan Buchanan. Uh, I did my undergraduate at the University of Dundee where I did history and politics. Uh, and afterwards, I uh, completed the MPhil in World History at the University of Cambridge. My research there was focused on the consequences of the Panama Canal on Argentina using a global approach to understand the economic decline to, in Argentina's international economy. I'm currently working on an oral history project related to the emergence of specialty coffee markets within producer nations. And I'm at the same time working with the Scottish Centre for Global History as an editor and coordinator. Awesome. Awesome, guys. Thanks for joining me. Um, so for this first episode, I thought it'd be useful if, you know, we could sort of set a base and discuss the kind of current state of affairs within global history. I think that would be quite useful to uh, supplement the, the blog posts that we're getting and then hopefully moving forward the research workshops as well. Um, so just to start, how would you guys put a definition on global history and what would you say makes it distinct from, say, histories of nations or states or intersectional histories? So, so I'll begin. Um, so defining world history is a long debate over what exactly it is because it's quite an ambiguous term. It goes between global history, world history, transnational history. The way that I would use it is, or define it, would be that it's focusing on global themes rather than the state as the foundation of the analysis. This could include things such as trade, religion, power, migration and intellectual histories across boundaries um, rather than focusing on the nation state specifically as the basis of the historical analysis. However, it does require the, the nation state um, to be present within the narrative uh, because of you know, developments into human society and how we understand the world and how, how it works. Um, and as well, because of archives and research tools the nation state does need to be considered and involved within the global histories that we do. Um, a good example of these styles of global history are looking at uh, products, so the history of coffee and how that influences different developments in different nation states. And, you know, coffee is a transnational product, it's, it's you know, mostly produced in the global south. 
So how does this one product influence all of these of these uh, heterogeneous societies and uh, economies? So would you say then that the nation state is an outdated concept to use when applying global history? If you're saying it's more concerned with themes or, like you said, with the example with coffee, it's relationships. Do you think examining something within the nation state is represents too much of a vacuum view of history or does it still have a place? So the nation state, as I was saying, it's still going to be present just because of the way the world is organised. Uh, the nation state is going to have to play a role in the, in the instruction and in the investigation of world history. Uh, but using themes rather than the nation state itself as to guide the, the investigation. So if you're looking at coffee in Mexico, what are the, the causes and consequences of coffee within that society? What is the relationship of that for labour production, uh, agricultural lives? How does it influence the relationship with the, with the giant of the north, with the United States? Um, Augustine Sedgwick's work on uh, Coffeeland, looking at El Salvador, a very good example of global history. So it's not just focusing specifically on one state of El Salvador, it incorporates all those developments. So in his work he uses the Hill family uh, as the migrants from, from Manchester who go to El Salvador and start up a, a coffee enterprise. That, that global capitalism and the coffee trade, how that influences the nation state. Uh, so just, it, it just creates a lot more of a, a wider scope to look at. And I was going to add that Conrad, in his book on what is global history, discusses how the, one of the values of global history is connecting that local and global, uh, those events together to uncover new, new information about the past, how that influences the trajectory of, of nation states' history, people's history, products' history. I just think it's more inclusive of, of, wider, of wider themes. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important topics is the connection between the local to the global. It's modern um, interstate relations. You can't have anything existing in a vacuum. So in a way, you do need global history to create different ideas and different themes that cross these boundaries, but then also enhance them as, as you demonstrated through the coffee trade. Um, Liam, I'd like to bring you in. How, how would you define global history? Uh, I mean, I would, there's, there's not an awful lot I would add to what Jordan said. I would just push like a tiny part of it a little bit further. And that when you take that kind of thematic approach, you tend to find that you create a more inclusive form of history as well. So like, as you kind of touched on briefly there in terms of linking the global and regional to the local. Although, yes, we, we use, or, or, you know, particularly in my work, I use the British Empire as a kind of like primary unit through which I kind of look at my particular areas of interest. And it was a global entity and it was a global enterprise. It's looking at how at the, at the local level it manifested in so many different ways and how it could, you know, create connections, integrate itself into pre-established connections or, or destroy connections for its own purposes, as well as looking at the, the kind of uh, counter to that, which is that, you know, the idea of the British Empire as being a global hegemon has been challenged through using a global lens um, and looking at the fact that it may have had a monopoly of violence in certain instances, but, but that, that was not universal. And that's particularly what I've found in my research in West Africa, is that it was very much isolated and it was very much circumstantial. And so through taking that global approach, it kind of reveals dormant narratives uh, that are just kind of waiting to be, uh, to be uncovered or pushed a little bit further. You've both sort of mentioned the, this connection between the local and the global. And Liam, when you mentioned this idea of inclusivity, how... How inclusive can we go on that? Like, how much can we know about local histories while adapting this global lens? Do you think it's two, it's two separate ideas, or do you think we can balance between the two? 
Um, I think that really depends on like what you're investigating and where you're investigating it. I think that the research question itself will obviously guide your research um, and the way you go about it. So I know that Jordan, for example, spent a lot of time in South America to, to inform a lot of his research and so that he has better access to those archives. Um, and because we live in such a globalised world now, it is far more feasible to make that extra effort to be inclusive. One of the, the uh, benefits of what we're doing here, and I, I'm sure we'll go on to chat about it later on, is to try and create a platform for researchers and early career academics and academics of all, um, at all stages in the career to access digital materials to help create that level of inclusivity. A really good example was the South Asian archives that JSTOR put up. So like, that's a really good example of uh, where we're using technology to try and make our history more inclusive and, and, and using materials from South Asia, but accessing them through, through internet technology. And so like, you know, that's a very modern development, but it's just the latest incarnation of how we are making our histories more inclusive and bringing the local and integrating it um, into the global. Yeah, so Jordan, in addition to these kind of technical aspects that you've touched on there, Liam, with globalisation of history, um, how, how do you think that global history has improved the general practice of history, more so from a theoretical perspective rather than just the practical implications? Yeah, so it helps to incorporate these new themes and also unites them into the production of history. So because prior to global history, you've got the, the emergence of gender history and uh, economic history as you know, specific sub-disciplines, uh, but global history allows it to converge. It can be one, it can still remain as a separate, you know, separate discipline uh, or sub-discipline, sorry. But the, the, the benefit of this is the, the potential to re reduce segmentation within the history department, and it promotes intellectual exchange across different focus groups. By doing that, you, can, you begin to create new research questions and by creating these new research questions, you begin to create new histories, having a better understanding of what happened in the past. So there, that's one major benefit from, from global history and how it's improving the practice. Uh, but it's also overcoming the dominance of uh, political narratives, starting with you know, von Ranke's classic kind of change to empirical history. And history has evolved so much since then, but the dominant narrative that most people are going to bring to the table is the political narratives that, because that's the world we live in. So by using world history, it allows us to overcome those, those, those dominant narratives and begin to ask new questions. And it, even when looking at the nation state as a unit of analysis, global history allows a move towards uniting history practitioners through shared perspectives. So those themes such as imperialism or power relations between, for example, Brazil and Great Britain at the end of the, the 19th century, it creates a unit, it brings these two these two nation state focuses together to create shared shared knowledge and a shared understanding which can open up new new questions again and open up new understandings um, and and the best example of this is of uh, Kenneth Pomerantz and Andre Gunnar Frank's uh, assessment of the Great Divergence and looking at how the Industrial Revolution impacts the the Great Divergence of of global economies and by uh, looking beyond the nation state as a specific analysis and looking at the economy. It reveals these changes, but also then informs analysis of, of local histories. Um, it will inform your analysis. So it just allows for a lot more exchange of ideas and, and new ways to inform what you're, what you're assessing. You can discover new idiosyncrasies across the history of the world, uh, as well as discover commonalities, things that are shared. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important points you touched on there is that certainly from the 1950s, 1960s onwards, you do have these emergent social histories and gender histories and subaltern histories and stuff like that. And global history isn't necessarily a, a rejection of those tropes, 
but it's it's actually makes it more of an inclusive platform where we can find um, common connections between kind of these different histories, so that it's not as much of a disjunctive discipline where we're constantly arguing with each other, but rather that we can kind of come to some common ground, examining things from global perspectives and these kind of other gendered or race or, or class perspectives as well. Liam, would you have anything to add to this? What the key issues with making history global are? Well, just kind of like pushing one of Jordan's points a bit further is that if you're taking a global approach to something, it makes it a lot more difficult to try and centralize like one core theme or one core approach. And I think, you know, gender histories, economic histories and whatnot, they've, they've been quite useful at moving us away from a Eurocentric form of history, but a lot of them were still kind of grounded in a Eurocentric element. And that was always kind of overhanging. And I think, don't get me wrong, I, I think that global history had that as well in terms of you know, its links to imperial history and colonial history. But it's far more difficult if you're taking a global approach to not be inclusive of the other side of the narrative. If, for example, you're looking at my sort of area, West Africa, and looking at uh, French and European quote-unquote expansion there, and the, the various dynamics that contributed to that expansion or hindered it, you cannot but look at the other side of the narrative. Um, you have to look at the indigenous narrative. You have to look at the local narrative. And so it kind of forces you um, to look at as many sides of the coin as you can um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love both those points. I think global history is almost a self-correcting discipline um, from how you have both described it. And it constantly asks more questions and it constantly opens up further points of research. Because as you said, there will always be another angle to approach a certain issue from. It's, like, it's a constant source of debate. And I think that's where this idea of sustainability comes from, is that it's been constantly corrected by historians who have different angles and stuff like that, all under this banner of global history. So who do you think are the main um, influences on the construction of global history, looking at both the sources and the historians? Definitely imperial history has a large part to play. Within sort of like this sort of imperial school of history, if, if you want to call it that, some people still do. John Darwin's a massive figure. He was quite influential in trying to broaden the histories of British imperialism and the histories to, to a larger extent, or to a lesser extent, sorry, of European imperialism and situate them in a much more global context. So rather it being uh, the West and the rest type of narrative, it was looking at the localized uh, manifestations of these empires and how they developed or if they developed or why they didn't. And so I think he was quite influential. Uh, in a lot of ways, particularly uh, in sort of the Cambridge School. Um, and you can see that in the uh, individuals that have, have came after him. Journal of Imperial Commonwealth History in 2019, they've done a series basically as a sort of farewell to Darwin when he retired last year. Um, and a lot of his students came back and wrote um, about their experiences with him, but also how his influence had impacted their work and how they take a, a global approach. You can see that in his scholarship as well as, as he kind of moved on into the sort of 2000s. Um, but yeah, he's certainly, for me, he's a key figure that informed my work um, as well. Uh, and I think that he's cast quite a large shadow over uh, Cambridge and over uh, the Imperial School um, more broadly. Yeah, definitely. Jordan, who would you say are your sort of main influences in this construction or of global history? Uh, so I would split the question apart to begin with, which is who constructs global history? And quite short, historians. Um, and in this case, one of the benefits of global history is that it's not really controlled by a nation state the way that a national history is. The 
one of the restrictions of of actually doing global history is the the nation state controls the funding that that allows you to research and the nation state also controls the museum it controls um the a lot of the output or at least doesn't control the person doing it but it controls the money that will allow someone to create that history and therefore it will be entangled into the motive and the, the outcome that is created by national histories global history is constructed by historians as well as those who devote their their spare time as editors and peer reviewers for journals that incorporate global themes into their production uh, and the publishing houses also allow for this uh, construction of global history so it's very very simple in the in, in that case um, and one of the benefits is that it, it, it takes away the control of the nation state. Um, but then who influences this? Who influences these official constructors of history? Essentially everyone does. These people exist in society like anyone else. So they're influenced by their students as well as the people they meet. This is why extending uh, the knowledge of global history and global experience of historians is invaluable to improve the production of the history because uh, by doing these things, by you know personal experiences in these locations, not always using an online archive and having a more anthropological influence on how you're going to create those research questions is very important on how it influences the, the construction of global history. Essentially, you know, in a very short answer, historians create global history and who influences them? Everyone. Yeah, I think there's actually, that's pretty interesting because there's, there's a bit of an issue there and because a lot of what influences uh, some of my work to a large degree is I want to kind of understand why or how the globalized world that I live in came into being. And, you know, I look at it from as objective a view as I can muster and I try to kind of keep my biases in check and whatnot. I think because of, there's a certain level of sensitivity towards the globalized world we live in, you only need to look at uh, the, uh, the refugee crisis that's currently happening and will continue to happen over the next sort of 30 years and how that's impacting uh, contemporary politics in Europe and whatnot. And it's actually impacting certain scholars as well. You know, there's a resurgence of essentially like imperial apologists um, that are coming out of the woodwork now because they feel more emboldened uh, because people are, you know, rewriting history in a lot of ways um, and their kind of, um, you know, bastardization of history in, in certain contexts, particularly like the slave trade. So there's, there's that element to global history, which I think is quite fascinating, is that because we are, uh, we kind of have a bit of skin in the game, um, you could argue. We're quite close to our subject matter, even though we're looking at, in certain cases, stuff that happened 200 years ago, say. We have a certain level of investment in it, um, and so does, um, so does our kind of like social milieu. And so I think that's quite fascinating when you can contrast that with other disciplines, maybe particularly like medieval historians and whatnot. It's, it's very different, the, the sort of level of interest or the type of interest that you can have uh, in, say, a research question and how that question can also be received by not just academic audiences but more you know public audiences which is again you know part of what we're trying to do uh, here at the center so would you both say then that touching on what you said with this idea of we need inclusivity and we need personal experience would you argue then that the historian has a social responsibility towards um, the wider world and towards the way history is perceived in the public or are we kind of in one sphere of academia and then whatever happens in, in the public mind happens separately and we just kind of have to tag along to that. No, I think that it's, um, I think it's probably near to impossible now to try and bury your head below the parapet as a historian. In terms of a social responsibility, I think that's very subjective and it's down to the individual. You can't project onto one of us 
that we should be you know performing a role um, and that we should be doing more because they're doing more I think that's unfair if someone asks your opinion as an academic who studies something and it seems like there's a relationship to some sort of current event and you go no I don't want to answer that it raises a lot of questions of like what, what is the purpose of an academic if you're not informing the current what's the purpose and I think it's quite difficult for historians to or academics generally to be able to do that nowadays the flip side of that is you get like obviously like scholar activists uh, we've seen that with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, both in the UK, but perhaps more importantly in, in the United States. And you see people using their platform in a lot of ways to um, essentially use history, <laughs> like use history and present its value to the, the current debate, um, such as it is. And so, yeah, I think that, that there's, there's massive benefits to that. The, the other side of that is, again, what I touched on earlier, which is uh, people using the platform to, uh, in a lot of ways, to basically keep up with with the uh, current trends of fashions. And then, and then academia, uh, I mean, there's been huge debates over uh, cancel culture and whatnot, which um, we shouldn't get into here. But it has provided a bit of confidence for certain historians to, to try and make their name through supporting certain messages or certain readings of the past. And I think that's a problem. And the best way to match that is to have uh, their peers stand up and use their platform to challenge it. And we see that a lot. Uh, there's, a, there's one particular story in down south, Kim Wagner, post-colonial historian. And he, he's, his uh, news, I would encourage anyone that has Twitter to follow him because he's fantastic at shutting down uh, imperial apologists. And there are, there are more and more of them coming out of the woodwork um, because they, you know, they see this as um, something that they can attach their name to uh, and kind of legitimize in a lot of ways because they have a PhD. Yeah, I mean, Jordan, would you agree? Do you think that, that there, there is the existence of these kind of imperial apologists the challenge to answer that question is who controls history, who, who decides what's correct and what's not, as, as people that, as you know, us three who are aspiring historians are aware, history is very subjective. There is no, you know, veracity does not exist. There is not, you're not going to discover a divine truth by opening up an archive. You're not going to go into the uh, diplomatic uh, communications between uh, Britain and post-independence India to discover you know, the, the truth of the, that relationship, exactly what it was. It's an interpretation of those, those sources in the context of a wider historiography. So therefore, it's very difficult to choose uh, who has the power in the history to decide who can be shut down, who can be listened to, who gets to cancel, who gets to challenge. In a, in a liberal academic uh, bubble, because we don't, it doesn't really exist in kind of a utopia, everyone should be allowed to speak. But, you know, now we're entering into a conversation which is about... Uh, a philosophical question on free speech and this is one of the, the challenges of being a historian is that as much as we'd love to we don't exist in the past we can't transport ourselves to uh, 19th century britain to understand what what really drove the industrial revolution and how that impacted the the, show, the the class relationships at that time we have to look at it from the present and therefore we're informed by that that present existence of where we are um, Did you not think that there's a that like one of the things about history that I admire is that it's based on consensus. Although there's like nitty pretty details that three of us could disagree upon class conflict in the 19th century based on things that we've read or our own ideological standpoint. You know, there is a consensus that there was class conflict in the 19th century. The issue is the power. Who holds the power? It's ambiguous. That's the that's the point I'm getting. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I'm just saying that it becomes ambiguous and challenging to decide who holds the power. The key point I think all of you have touched upon is this idea that global history, whether or not the consensus is with it, does have an influence and it is brought forward by what's going on in the public mind. So we can't separate ourselves from that. 
But then on the other hand of that, we can take too much of an active role and assuring people that we know we're right because, like you said, we have the, the masters or the PhD to a name. We ha- you have to operate within this sphere of, best of my knowledge, I know that this is right, but I could also be challenged from any of these other angles that comprises global history. So given some of these issues raised, um, how do you think we can use, you know, specifically the blog, um, Scottish Centre for Global History, to approach some of these key concerns? Um, so I think, first of all, I need to outline one of the restrictions of global history at the moment, which is that it is still dominated by, uh, you know, places that historically developed a control over academia. So Europe, USA, uh, Australia, they have a major influence on the production of history. And therefore, people that have different opinions, different interpretations that are informed by their own local developments, their own challenges, but by not listening, but because of the challenges of global history. If you're not listening to them, that's therefore not informing global history. So there's global history jumping a narrative of the social events that are going on within London and not within Mexico City or Guadalajara. Uh, so, the, so one of the major things here of using a blog, an online blog, is that it transcends the boundaries, it transcends the nation state as global history really intends to do as, as its objective. Anyone from anywhere can send a blog as long as you know, graduate student or uh, of some academic discipline that intends to share their, research, their ongoing research. Uh, these people can be at the University of Lagos or the University of Nairobi and send in a blog that can be shared amongst a, a global audience uh, and obviously because of where we're situated, or the majority of our audience are based in Great Britain or the USA. But that's kind of one of the goals that we'd like to, to achieve here at the, at the centre, is that we're starting there, but the goal is to get everywhere. Yeah, of course, of course. Liam, would you, would you add to that in terms of what you would want to see for this blog in the future? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think one of the things that we, for me, kind of, we put together a prospectus basically to to turn the center, Scottish Centre for Global History into a bit of a project for the three of us over summer. And we had these kind of like uh, immediate, medium and, and long-term goals, um, which Jordan's kind of touched on. And the blog was really about, uh, you know, as much as it's about bringing in uh, research from across the world, uh, which we are now doing, which is awesome. Uh, and we want to increase that global reach. And as Jordan's also said, we want to increase that readership and that audience. And we also want that audience to become more public, which is one of the the primary challenges that we kind of put down to contributors is to be able to write for an audience that isn't your lecturer, that isn't your supervisor or your academic peers. And that's really our, that was our immediate objective, which we're doing really well with and we're really chuffed with, with how that's going. In terms of the medium intent behind this project, we really wanted to try and create a space for postgraduates to get their work out there. We know how difficult it is to get your work published uh, academically. So if you submit to a journal, you could be waiting anywhere in the region of six to 24 months. Uh, sometimes longer and we have no idea what the impact of COVID is going to be on that as well and so this is an awesome opportunity that some of us uh, like myself and Jordan and Paul have had a bit of exposure to uh, with other blogs and we've seen you know use them to get our work out there and we that kind of informed what we wanted to do with this um, but also we wanted to democratize it in a lot of ways and put the onus and the opportunity out to people so we have a general skeleton framework that we want uh, to try and kind of keep to because we do want it to be publicly engaging and a whole bunch of other uh, bells and whistles but ultimately we want to kind of democratize it in a lot of ways and get as many narratives as many types of research as we can out there um, and hopefully as we develop this platform uh, that will encourage uh, a greater level of diversity and uh, what this center's research output becomes but yeah in the long term what we want to do is try and facilitate our platform for 
a career in academia, a career as a historian. And so what we've been working on recently is our uh, global history resources. So um, that's going to be collecting uh, archives and databases that are open access from across the world. And we categorize them into different area, area studies or themes, which as we kind of discussed throughout this is sort of at the core of uh, global history for students to use so that they can, during lockdown, continue the research and continue their careers. And again, the onus is on them to kind of help us as well. So if they have uh, open source or know of open source materials that are indigenous to Latin America, and only, you would only really discover if you're working in Latin America or South America, sorry, um, then, you know, they can let us know about it and we can add it to the blog uh, and kind of, you know, further other people's research. Um, additionally, we've also got other research centres. So, um, you know, hopefully when we can go back to the physical world, these centres host conferences, research seminars, uh, workshops, all things that we aspire to do as well once we can... Um, once we're through the crisis. Um, and finally, there's also a similar blogs. Um, because at the end of the day, our long-term goal, as I said, was to is to facilitate us as a kind of platform to, to push your career forward in a lot of ways. And so once you've hit that postgraduate mark, to come to us and, and you know, discuss your research, collaborate with us, but then also to look at what else is out there. Where else can you get your research out there? Who else can you collaborate with um, to sort of get your name um, in people's minds um, as you kind of pursue your career? And so, yeah, that's where I think we're, we're at with the blog. That's amazing, guys. Thank you so much. Um, I'll conclude it there. I think we've ended on a kind of positive, inspiring note um, for anyone who wants to get involved with the blog or, as I say, the new um, research workshops that we're going to be pushing out in the next few weeks. Liam and Jordan, thank you so much for coming on to discuss some of these key issues. If any listeners would like to get involved in the research seminars or blog posts, please don't hesitate to contact us at scgh at dundee.ac.uk. And remember, you can also keep up to date with their productions on Twitter at UODSCGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.